0: Uh, visitors here, uh, we have been coming through every book of the Bible, and uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but because Christ is the theme of the Bible, every, every book of the Bible, Christ is portrayed in a different fashion. There's something about his character, who he is, something that he represents that is woven through every book of the Bible, And what we wanted to do is we wanted to, you know, we're in the midst of a major campaign here of of trying to get people to, to learn their Bibles. We're going to start here in the summer taking three Saturdays, one a month, and go through a class that I taught a number of years ago. Probably was one of the greatest things we ever did in our church called Bible Basics. And it really pulls the Bible together for you and it gives you the picture that you're supposed to be looking for in the Bible and how it really works for you. And we've been doing a lot of things to try to add to that and to help that work its way out in people's lives because we're about the Bible here. And so we started coming through uh, each book of the Bible and basically laying Christ out in each book of the Bible. And we've worked our way up to the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we know now that uh, that church is having a lot of spiritual issues, a lot of problems. And they really uh, they really mirror many of the churches that we have out there today. They just don't have a good handle on Bible principles. They're arguing about who won who to Christ and tagging some kind of spirituality to that, who won who, who baptized to. It's just a real mess. So we have been coming through, and, and what we're going to do— Once we get done with the books of the Bible, the New Testament coming through the Christ, how he's typified, we're going to come back and we're going to study uh, verse by verse the book of 2 Corinthians because where our church is at, we just finished Romans before we launched into this and our church has many people in it now that have come into this church over the last eight years or so, have grown, got a good foundation in the Bible, We're always looking for new people who want to learn the Bible, who want to become part of our ministry family team that can help other people. And, uh, you know, so now that we're in 1 Corinthians, we're going to take a little time uh, because of the contrast between the two books. And I told you this when we started. In 1 Corinthians, basically it's a book on how not to build a church and and how not to minister. In 2 Corinthians, you have the book that basically tells you how to build a church and how to minister. So I told you that we're going to spend a little more time with this one, and then we'll refer back to our notes when we get into 2 Corinthians, and we'll make the contrast because I think it'll be very, very, very important for you to see it and understand that. But last week, you know, I told you that when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and last week was basically an introduction. When you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is the New Testament teaching for the church on the, what God wants the church to know and understand and the principles on how to operate and deal with the concept of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And as I said, last week we laid a really good foundation to build on. I'm kind of a foundation guy. I think that, you know, you, you approach the Bible like you do building a building. I think uh, buildings without a foundation are not very stable, and I think Christians in the Bible without a foundation aren't very stable either. So I, I'm the kind of guy that likes to build a foundation in everything that I do with people's lives. My whole world is spent spending one-on-one time with people. And uh, we developed our discipleship program, and we, we, we call that our foundation lessons. It takes you right after you get saved, gives you a foundation to build on. The Bible basics, are what I'm going to do again this summer. That's all that is. Next level up, maybe, same concept. It's a foundation of building things in your life that you can build on. The Bible makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the day you and I got saved, what we basically did was lay a foundation in our life. And that foundation uh, is Jesus Christ. And the day you and I got saved, uh, we laid the foundation of our Christian life, which is Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says that we're to be a wise master builder and every man is to take heed how he build thereupon. And then he talks about a building process. And that's what each of us are in today. Uh, I'm not a Bible scholar, don't want to be, don't claim to be. There are no experts when it comes to the ministry, Christianity, or the Bible. No, we're just all students on different levels. But that level depends on the foundation that you build. And so when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the reason why I told you last week I want to spend some quality time with this is because Uh, in our dealing with people, in your dealing with people. And I told you, my overall goal is to prepare servants that people that have need, wherever you work, uh, that you have the tools to be able to help them. And I wanted you to learn about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, the cause and effect, why things happen the way they are. And now we know, we saw historically, uh, how the body of Christ, God's people, got into the mess and the disastrous situations in regarding to relationships and and failed marriage. And I I gave you some of the statistics last week. I believe, I believe that how we got into messes and understanding it is just as important as figuring out how to get out of the mess we got in. And I think that when you don't learn from your mistake, I I don't care what mistakes you make. And I want to say something very clearly today, and I said it last week, but I want to keep putting it into what I say because there's a tendency for people that hear this, uh, what I'm saying, that, you know, it has a tendency that maybe can make you feel bad about yourself because maybe you're in the middle of a bad scenario or you're coming through one or you've been through one, and and, and God knows you've been through enough beat-up time in your life, and that's not my purpose in any way, shape, or form. I, I say this all the time, I don't care where you've been in life, I really don't care what you've done. We've all made mistakes. The pastor that stands in the pulpit and beats somebody else up for them making a mistake is a pretty foolish individual because we've all made mistakes, we've all had down times in our life, and uh, there's no man on earth that can point a finger at anybody else because if you know, the reality is that we all have our issues, have had our issues, and probably (laughs) will continue to have our issues. So I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been into. The only single thing I care about is really the only thing that God cares about this morning because he don't care where you've been either. All he cares about is what do you want to do with your life from this point forward? Number of years ago, I preached a revival. I've told you the story before, and uh, it was a place where God came down, and we just really had a revival. And I was preaching hard every night, and uh, you know, a lot of people lights were coming on for a lot of people, and a lot of good, God th- good things got done. At the end of that week, a man came up; had to be in his seventies, maybe even his eighties. One of the nicest guys you ever meet in your life. He came up and put his arms around me, thanked me for taking my time away from coming to come to their church and to preach to that. And he had tears running down his face. And he said to me, he said, you know what? He says, I just wished I would have heard what you said this week 40 years ago in my life. He said there was some things would have been different. Now, I appreciated that, and I appreciate somebody at that age recognizing the fact that, you know, that uh, there, he could have done some things differently. I can really appreciate that. But I looked at him and I uh, hugged him back and I, I told him, I said, well, I really appreciate that. But let me ask you a question. What are you going to do with it now that you have heard it? And that's really the question. It's not about where we've been or what we've done. It's about right now in your life, what you heard last week or what you hear on a weekly basis, now, what you're going to hear today. What are you going to do with it now that you, you know what the truth is? What are you going to do with your life now that you know that, that God has something for you to do with your life? Our church here is about people. I was thinking as I was driving in this morning, you know, I was thinking, you know, how that uh, uh, the many, many, many people who, uh, who do uh, basically what I started out to do when we started our church. I was one guy, and then God gave me two guys, and then God gave me three or four guys and gals, and pretty soon there were other people doing exactly what I was doing, and that is ministering to people. Now, you know, uh, everywhere I look, everywhere I go, everything I look at, I see men and women in this church ministering to other people that I would never have the hours in the week to do. And that is really what we're supposed to do, reaching out to others. And, of course, as I said, understanding how we got into this mess in relationships, to me, is just as important as understanding how uh, we get out of it. Now, last week I told you about three institutions that God established. These three institutions are major in your Bible. These three institutions are the bedrock of everything else you're going to go through in the Bible. And I gave them to you in the order of their appearance in the Bible, and then I went back and showed you the order of their disappearance in, in our world. The first one was in Genesis chapter 2, and the first institution that God established is the concept of marriage. And we talked about how that marriage was not a man's idea, it was God's idea based on Adam and Eve and how it laid itself out through Genesis. By the time you move on to Genesis chapter 10, you'll find that the second institution that God establishes, and that will be civil government. And you're going to find in the Old Testament, that's why God calls out a nation, That's why God gives the nation of Israel the laws that they have. See, they're not just a nation as such. They're a religious nation based on God's concept and his relationship with civil government. So he gives them not only a religion in the Old Testament, he gives them a nation, the nation of Israel. I really enjoyed, oh, uh, um, the prime minister of Israel right now. uh, Yeah, he really wiped up on Obama this week. I thought that was good. He's a tough guy. Most people don't know that uh, he led the raid on Entebbe back in the, uh, uh, I think it was in the late 70s when Adi Amin down in Africa, Uganda, uh, the terrorists told, stole the plane, uh, hijacked it, flew all the people down there, and half of them, like 150 of them were the Israelis. And uh, they, uh, they kept them in a hangar there at the airport, and, they were, and Adi Amin was playing both sides against the middle, And uh, obviously, they let all the non-Jews go. We're going to wipe out the Jews. And uh, the Jewish uh, uh, military put together one of the most ingenious plans to rescue them that has ever been done in the annals of military history. And so when you're talking about this guy over here talking to the the president, he's the guy that uh, you're not going to fool around with. This guy, his idea is you kill one of us, we'll kill 10 of you. And uh, he led the raid. And it was an incredible deal, and I don't mean to take time for my message, but I'll give up preaching anytime time to tell a good war story, so listen to me. <coughs> what they did was is that they got four or five C-130s. They didn't ask to tell anybody what they were going to do. They, now, they had to fly 1,800 miles one way and then back. And so what they did is they flew out there. They had a special commando team, and the Israeli commandos are the best commandos in the world. And uh, in the cover of darkness in the middle of the night, and with no lights on the runway, these guys landed these big C-130s, three or four of them. Inside the C-130s, they had a Mercedes Benz just like the one that Omin drove, and a guy dressed up like him. And in the middle of the night, they, nobody heard the planes land, and these guys let the ramps down, and the commandos went out and went in the darkness and kind of surrounded the place. And uh, these guys went in, and this car drove up, you know, and these terrorists come out, and everybody was asleep. They had all of the Israelis in one little spot there and they had explosives all wired around. That if anybody tried to uh, get them through a gunfight, you know, they were going to blow them all up, so you couldn't do that. So this big Mercedes, benz in the middle of the night, drives up these terrorists think it's all of them. In he gets all straightened up. This guy comes up, and out this thing, and you know, nails him. Everybody comes in, and the thing's over in about ten minutes. I think three or four or five Israelis got killed, but uh, uh, but it was a uh, you know collateral damage. It was one of the greatest military operations. He led that raid. His brother was one of the only was the only commando that was killed, and uh, he's an incredible guy. He's somebody to watch in history because uh, he is going to, he's going to bring the nation of Israel uh, back. He'll always bring it to a military focus point. And that's why when Obama wanted him to give back the, the land that they got back to the Six Days Wars in 67, he told him where he could take that and put it. And uh, <laughs> politically nice, you know, which is, uh, it ain't going to happen. This guy's a good guy. But civil government was the second one. And God established civil government. We see the civil government as the nation of Israel. And, of course, God's going to bring back that government to the nation of Israel uh, in the tribulation and in the millennium, which we've already seen form. The third one is the church. That covers the New Testament. You see, you and I are not part of a nation. Back in the Old Testament, it was a religious nation. One nation God lifted up against all the other nations and said, You're separate because we're dealing with civil government. In the New Testament, Christianity doesn't work by a government. We're not a Christian nation. There are no Christian governments. There's only God's people who are part of a spiritual body when you get saved and makes up the body of Christ. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You want to remember that because we're going to come back to that here in just a little bit. Now, last week we saw the complete and total breakdown and failure of all three of these institutions, we now know why that happened, because they dumped the Word of God. And we talked about the Bible being like salt, and when the salt loses its savor, then the whole thing breaks down. And we went through and showed you the cause and effect of why we, the body of Christ, are such, in such distress today in relationships based on the failure and the breakdown of these three institutions, and of course, um, the church uh, suffering because of it today. And we saw, as I said, the end result today is most of God's people, it's a tough thing to say, we find that most of God's people, I'm not talking about the people that are out in the bars or don't go to church, I'm talking about people that are in churches every Sunday, but we have God's people today that are in total rebellion to the Word of God and its principles. And um, we're just like the nation of Israel was in 606 B.C. before the great captivity came. You know what? We have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. We carry our Bibles. We go to church. We don't go to the places we shouldn't. But like the theme of 1 Corinthians, Jesus is Lord. And like he says over there in, uh, in that great passage in Luke chapter 6, why call ye me Lord, Lord, not do the things which I say? And all the while, God's people today, the body of Christ, is playing the game of Christianity as Israel did right up to when God brought the captivity. And I'm not going to get off my message today, but you, you can see what's coming. We've talked about it before that there is a captivity coming for the, na- for, for the body of Christ. We won't spend a lot of time on it today, but you don't think for a moment that God's going to allow us to do what we've done with the Word of God and not have a price to pay for it. But anyway, that's another message. We've talked about that before. Now, I want to begin reading today in First Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to read the first six verses or so. And then we're going to come back, we're going to start looking. I told you that there are 20 rules of engagement here, not rules of engagement as far as getting engaged like marriage, but rules of engagement as far as uh, dealing with people with problems when they come in. And that's my goal. My goal is to help those who uh, come into our church that are struggling in relationships, and then my goal also is to help those uh, who uh, want to really be able to reach out to others. Because God has people in your world today that needs the message that you have. My job is to help you get it a little clearer. And let me just say this before I go any farther. I won't forget it, but it's appropriate time to say it because it's going to happen today. And I already asked if I could do this. Mark and, Mark and Sonia, I want you to know, uh, I'll tell you, I want to say this public before everybody. It's been a long time in my ministry. And I know when, Sonia, you came in, you had issues that you were working through in your life and everything, and Mark did too And when you come in, and you came in long before he did. But I want to tell you something, and I want to say this publicly. It's been a long time in my ministry that I've seen two kids do it by the book and do the way it needed to be done. There wasn't a time that when you got worked with with people that they didn't tell you guys, no, that's not what you want to do, you want to do this. You never argued, you just did what you saw the Bible said. You know, you said something to me a long time ago. You probably don't even remember saying it. Uh, remember when we first met, somebody invited you over to a softball game. I think you played that night, you and your sister both. And Mark wasn't even in the picture yet. He was in that movie, cowboy movie out there someplace. <laughs> in, in, uh, he's a cowboy. Anyway, you said something to me. We invited you to church that day. You came the next day. And I think you've never, never, you've been back every day. I don't think you've missed other than when you were sick or whatever. But anyhow, you said something to me after that service. You said, you know what? This is something I've been looking for all my life. You said, I will never not be here and listen to what the Word of God has to say. Something like that. And you know what? You were true to that all the way down through it. And because you did what was right in your own life of taking the very things that I'm talking about today and putting them into your life, God gave you the desire of your heart. God gave you what you wanted. He got into the Word of God. And now I fully am confident that, that this marriage is, is going to be a great marriage and you guys are going to be a great couple for the Lord. And I'm happy that you're here. I'm happy for the small part. There were many other people that had more in your life to do than I did. I was just the guy to crack the whip. But, <clears throat> but it's a thing where I wanted to say that before I go any farther because where I'm going today, what I'm talking about, you kids have done it by the book. And I want you to know that today, that I'm proud of you. And it's an honor to do your wedding today. And so I know last week I said I enjoy funerals more than weddings because funerals are more, more permanent. <laughs> but yours will be a permanent one, I guarantee you. And that's, I appreciate that. So God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our time today. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for the time that we can have today and look into your word. We thank you for the folks that are here. And Lord, let these visitors know today that uh, that we're just a a church that believes the Bible, loves the Bible, that I'm just a pastor that believes the most important thing in the world are the people that God gives him. And we just want to impart the Word of God today. We take people where we find them. We never make judgments about them. We never think ill of them. We know that in an imperfect world, you have people with imperfect problems. And our job as the body of Christ is to help take them when they want to do what's right, to help them straighten it out, not look behind, but look ahead and look around and do the things that we need to do in their lives. So we thank you today. We thank you for the joyous day of of Mark and Sonny and their wedding, and we thank you for their testimony, and and we thank you, Father, for the Word of God that you've given us that really makes it all possible. So we love you. Open up our hearts. Open up the Word of God through your spirit. Give us those things that we need. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. All right. It says in First Corinthians chapter seven. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Mark, you don't have to worry about that verse just yet. Okay, we're all right here. You're going to get married this afternoon, anyhow. <laughs> Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and the wife also the uh, under the wife uh, um, under the also the wife under the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud not ye one of the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and then come together again, that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Now the first thing I want to do here, and I told you last week that the standard teaching about the marriage, divorce, and remarriage that every Baptist church follows today is not the biblical format that is written down in the Bible for the churches. And I told you that in the Old Testament, which churches today try to put God's people under, God doesn't look at the marriage and divorce and the remarriage the same way he does in the New Testament. It's the difference between grace and under the law. And the first thing I want you to see today, I want to draw your attention to three key verses. And these are absolutely key in understanding this chapter. Now, the first one is in verse 6, and it says, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. The second one is in verse 10. We didn't read it, but look on down there. And to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Then look at verse 12, the third one. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. What in the world is he talking about? What has Paul got, what business has he got telling somebody something that's not of the Lord? See, and that's how it's looked at many, many times. Of course, that couldn't be farther from the truth. And what you see here, what I told you last week, is these verses show you that there's a difference from the Old Testament under the law than the New Testament under grace. And you want to mark these verses. Verse 6 says, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. You know what he's saying? He's saying that what I'm about to tell you is not covered in the Old Testament. There's no commandment on it. But I'm going to give you added revelation and speak something by permission. What permission? Permission of the Holy Spirit of God given to the New Testament church, something that was not under the Old Testament nation of Israel. Now, that's where you start to see this thing. And this is what you've got to see. He changes things up in the New Testament. Now, look at the next one. Next one's in verse 10. To the married I command, yet none I but the Lord. Okay? Now, here's something in verse 10 that it's in the Old Testament, and it's going to be okay to take this what's in the Old Testament and going to apply it to the New Testament. You see, there are some things that stay the same, and then there's some things that he changes It's the difference between going from the Old Testament law where there is no grace to the New Testament grace under the church where there is no law. It's the difference between going through in a situation where God is dealing with a nation under a civil government rule under the Old Testament law and coming into a body of believers that is not under the law but is under grace. So he adds things. Some of the things carry through. Many of them do not. And it's simply the difference between under the law and under grace. Now look at verse 12. Here's our little radical verse. Verse 12 says, but to the rest speak I and not the Lord. What is he saying? You know what? I've actually heard preachers and read articles where guys says that this is where Paul is out of fellowship with God and is speaking outside of what he should speak. How ludicrous is that? I mean, how ludicrous. Everything, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. Once you take the fact and accept the fact that everything in that Bible was put in there by God and no mistakes in it, that won't work. No, no, no. Anything but what the Bible is saying. What he's saying there, but to the rest speak, I, not the Lord, this is where, again, he's going to get added revelation to the body of Christ that is not covered in the Old Testament when the Lord gave Moses the law. See how that thing works? Now, that shows you the verses, and we talked about this last week. And uh, this is why you don't follow Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19 when you get into the New Testament. I don't know how many times I've taught you this. This is a basic, fundamental rule when it comes to the Bible. For the church, you and me, we have our own apostle. The nation of Israel had 12 apostles. The church has seven apostles. Maybe you didn't know that. But the head apostle is Paul. And it was Paul who God gave the revelation about the body of Christ that you and I are part of that make up the church. So if you want absolute, 100%, places where you don't have to wonder, where we think twice that it is directly written to you, the church, you go with Paul's writings. I've said it many, many times. All the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written directly to you. And the first major step you make in the Bible is being able to determine what is written directly to you and what is written maybe for you, but not directly to you. Now, by saying that, I say it again. Whenever you're in a book that Paul wrote, now that we know that he's the apostle to the church, that he was given the gospel to the church, and he writes the books to the churches... 100% 100% of the time, you're safe in his. And that's why you don't go to Matthew 5 or 19 to find New Testament teaching for the church. You go to the book that is written by the man who established the church. He also, through God, established the doctrine for the church in everything. Why would you think that Paul would set down everything else we do in churches, but when it comes to marriage and divorce or remarriage, he didn't, and you've got to run back to the Old Testament. doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense if you know the Bible, but... That's where you're at today. Now, let me, let me give you today our first rule on marriage. And uh, let me explain to this, and I'm going to break it down, these rules. There's a lot of concepts here, and I don't want you to confuse the concepts I give you with the rules. So I will tell you the rules as we go, and then at the end of the message, I will again give you the rules so you understand, so you don't get them messed up, so we don't get into the thing like we do in Bible study. When I say, all right, this is number five. Well, now I've got four. Well, I've got three. Well, I've got nine. Well, no. I understand. And that's all my confusion, not yours. Okay. Now, here's your first rule. In the Old Testament, there were ground. Now, you've got to listen very carefully here. In the Old Testament, there were grounds for divorce. And found in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 24. The Bible says that death in the Bible is considered a divorce when your spouse dies. But also in the Old Testament of the law, the Bible says that Moses gave the decree for a divorcement under the Old Testament law. And of course, uh, the Bible says when the Pharisees asked Jesus about this, he gives us a little more light on it. He says, yes, basically that's true, but Moses did that because of the hardness of your heart. He says from the beginning, it wasn't so. So there's a case where God allowed under the law Moses, who represents the law, to put in a clause of divorcement as adultery as the issue, that in the Old Testament there is, a, there is a ground for divorce in the Old Testament. And now this is what we saw last week, that this is the teaching that wrongly so gets taught to the church today. And this is why you're told that if you get a divorce and the grounds is not adultery, then if you get remarried, then you live the rest of your life in adultery, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And that's just simply not true. Not true. And of course, the thing I want you to remember is the first part of rule number one simply says that in the Old Testament, this is what I want you to remember. In the Old Testament, there were grounds for a divorce. You could come in and say, she's been with somebody else, I don't want her, and you could get a, give her a written divorce Letter of divorcement in the Old Testament. Now, here's the killer. And uh, this is, when you put the Bible to it, this is much worse than, than what the Baptist standard teaching is on it, but this is Bible teaching. Now, in the Old Testament, there were grounds for divorce. But in the New Testament, listen to me now, in the New Testament, there are no grounds for divorce. Under any circumstances, adultery isn't even considered into it in the New Old Testament there were' grounds because you're dealing under the law in the New Testament, there are no grounds under any circumstances for any person who is married to get a divorce. now why is that? Why is that? well, first of all, because there's not should be not two things two Christians can't work out I mean there's no We're part of Christ's body. When you get married, it's a spiritual thing in the New Testament. It wasn't a spiritual thing in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, what you have is when two get married and they're saved, they're in the same body. And the Bible tells you how many times there shouldn't be no schisms. That's a division, no divisions in the body. There's a oneness in the body. We have the mind of Christ. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside that. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. Everybody here this morning is saved. You are in the body of Christ, and your wife or your husband is not only your wife and your husband, but they are your brother and sister in Christ if you're truly saved. You're in the family. That's not like my family where I can say to my mom you know, or my, my brother or whoever and say, I never don't have a brother, but if I had one, I, you know what, I'm done with this family and never coming back. I can say that, but the bottom line is she's still my mother because I was brought into this world by her and it really doesn't matter what I say, see, in a physical sense. Well, in a spiritual sense, you're in Christ's body. And there should be nothing that two Christians should not be able to forgive and forget and to work out. Now, get what I'm about to say and listen very carefully because this is very important. In the New Testament, there are no biblical grounds for divorce, but in the New Testament, there are reasons for divorce. That's the key here. That's the most important thing I'm going to say to you today. It's just there's no grounds for it, but there are reasons for divorce in the New Testament. And that will be, in any given situation, either one or both of the people simply won't do what the Bible says. And after a while, it goes on and it goes on and it goes on for whatever reason. There's no fixing it, and it's gone. Now, let me put it into a a context where you can grasp because I know that's probably a shock to your system. But just like there should be nothing that two Christians can't work out in a marriage relationship... There should be nothing that two Christians can't work out in a church, and there should be no splits in churches. How does that work for us? Listen, we live in an imperfect world, and in that imperfect world, we have we're all imperfect people. And um, imperfect people get into all kinds of situations and circumstances. And when it comes to a church or it comes to a ministry, we don't have the the luxury to pick and choose who we minister to. We shouldn't have that luxury. Wherever a person is at is where uh, and how they got there is really of no concern. What is of a concern, as I said earlier, is where do you want to go from here? Because I'm telling you, folks, let me say this. In your work with people, when you work with people and deal with people, some of you already see this, in bad marriages, there will be some marriages that simply cannot be fixed. Now, God is always willing to take you where you're at, but the longer a person or a couple or whoever waits to get the help they need, it's just a clear, simple principle, the less chance you have. And I want to make it very clear in saying these things, and I'm not saying anything here today to make anybody, anywhere, no matter what your past life has been, and I may not even know it, I don't care to know it. I'm telling you this. This is what the Bible says. This is how it lays itself out. But in an imperfect world, it doesn't work that way. So what the church does and what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is make sure that The real church of Jesus Christ doesn't wind up being like most Baptist churches that take somebody who's made a mistake in life and then throws them under the bus. That doesn't solve anything. I've known churches that, uh, and I told you last week, how that when 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 the marriages started to fail, people went to church. They knew enough to know that this is where I go to get help. But what did they do? They got clobbered. See? They got clobbered. And I'm telling you, I've known people that I've known people that uh, you know that uh, uh, have have gotten pregnant out of wedlock, and most churches turn down their noses at them. I was talking to Mike, you know, the other day, uh, in, when him and I have our meetings. Mike Hammond, and he was telling about a situation in their church where uh, this this g- girl and this guy uh, they got she got pregnant, and they weren't married, and they wanted to get married. And the pastor said, yeah, uh, we'll marry you, but you can't get married in the church. So I'll marry out in the field. And then they passed the word around and nobody, none of the real Christians in the church would come to the wedding. And here's a young couple that already got their back against the wall. They already got two strikes against them. If there's anybody at that time that the church needs to reach out to, put their arms around Oh, and don't give me this thing about what they did. You want to talk about what you and I have done? Oh, no, no, excuse me. You want to talk about what you have done? (laughs) That was by permission, not of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Give me a break. Are we so pious as God's people that when somebody... Hey, you know what my first thought is online? What did Jesus say? He said, the whole have no need of a physician. If you're doing great and you're doing fine and you got it all together, you don't need a physician. You know who needs a physician? Those that are sick. We're physicians, spiritually. Well, you're going to see the doctor, he sits down, he listens to your heart, he looks in your mouth, he looks in your ears, and then he tells you what he's told in the last 67 people. You got a virus. <laughs> then he gives you a prescription, you go home, and you know, and hopefully it's a broad enough and a thing that, and a, not a, and a, and a, antibiotic antibiotic that you get well well that's what we do you come in sit down in my office you tell me what you see spiritually i look in your eyes i look in your nose i look in your ears and i you know and check your heart see where it's at with the lord and then i give you a prescription here's what you need to do same thing how pious is the church become today that you find people who get into problems so what so what To me, it's great job security. You sinners out there keep me in business forever. (laughs) It's like Joe Christensen or any other cop. You got great job security because there's always going to be crime. And I got great job security. There's always going to be sin. But you know what? You have got to take people where they're at. Do you see how far the church has come from where Jesus was? Nobody else, they wanted to stone the woman at the well. He wanted to listen to her. Because that's our job. And so I want you to understand that. These are the hard rules of the road, but I want to tell you, and I'm telling you right now, it sometimes, you know, it gets so bad and it goes for so long. I mean, the longer the husband waits to admit that he's got some issues and get help, the longer the wife waits to get the help that she needs, I'm just going to be honest, the less chance you have. Sometimes too much damage is done. I never pass judgment on people. I don't look down at people. I take everybody on an even thing. You can make $100 million a year and you can make $9.98 at McDonald's if you even make that much at McDonald's. I don't know. <clears throat> and you know what? I look at you the same. In fact, I'd probably tend to look at you more than I would the guy with a million dollars because I I'm just, with the biblical principles that go along with that. But my point is this I don't pass judgment on people. <clears throat> but I got to tell you this, and you're going to learn this in ministry. And some of you already have found this out. I can only work with what somebody brings me. I mean, I used to be an electrician. Well, really was. I was trying to be an electrician, you know, like Kevin. And uh, I remember one time, and I, and I was never good at electrical work. I could do the basics, but this three-phase stuff, you know, it just. Uh, and I was all right at it. <clears throat> but my deal is <clears throat> that I'm such a sloppy, precise person. Now, you take Kyle. He's down in Wichita today, but Kyle's a perfectionist. If you ever have Kyle build you something it'll be perfect. It may take him longer than anybody else, but it'll be absolutely perfect. <clears throat> That's the way he is. Everything he does, it's perfect. And I've got guys like that that, you know, that do other things that, that that whatever they do, they really do a good job at it and it's perfect. You ought to see the deck that I would build you. I'm not I'm, I'm far from that, you see. I, I And, and, and le- electrical thing, I could put the wires together and hook all those things up, but uh, you know what? Uh, and but What really got me was cutting holes in people's ceilings. You'd get a job order, and you'd go to a woman and say, she's got this, I like a, like a fan right in the middle of my ceiling. Well, now, you know, my first response is, well, why in the world didn't you tell them that when you were building it? I mean, you know... <laughs> But I want it now. <clears throat> so now what do I do? How do, you, how do you find the middle of a room? I mean, the exact middle. I can eyeball it. It'll look good till I put it up there, and then it's going to be off. <laughs> you only get one chance of cutting a hole in a ceiling. <clears throat> I would hate those things. I'd absolutely be paranoid about it. And one lady, one time, she said, "I want it. I want to tie it all together here, to here, to here, and to here." And I said, "Lady, I said, I'm an electrician, but I'm not a magician. (laughs) You've got wires going everywhere here. My point is this: I'm not a magician." I don't have in my office upstairs in the upper room, I, I don't have in that cabinet over here love potion number 9, 10, 11, or 12. There's no special mix that I can mix in fairy dust. Well, not fairy dust, but uh, you don't want to fairy dust. Sprinklies that I can put on you that will make you spiritual and make you do. I just can't. I, I wish I could. I, and I and I but I understand some things. You see, the, it takes ten times longer to get out of something than it took you to get into it. That's why I always tell you, sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And then the longer you wait, you have the compounding effect. And then both of you get anger. That turns to bitterness. That turns to hatred. Then you get your pride in it. Then you get hurt. And then your your, your marriage becomes a battleground. And it it. it, it It's like when you went down to the World War I Museum. That was called the war to end all wars, but it didn't. But that was a very gruesome war because it was what they called a static war. Static means you're stationary. It was a trench warfare. You had your trenches here, 200 yards. You had the German trenches, and you stayed there for months. Nobody gained any ground. Nobody lost any ground. You just stood there and took pot shots at each other and lobbed a grenade every once in a while. And that's what your marriage becomes. It becomes an entrenched static warfare. Nobody gains any ground. Nobody loses any ground. And it's a thing where it just becomes a problem. In my marriage enrichment series that's on on tape, I tell uh, men and women, and it's so valuable in in, in some areas that uh, prolonged damage comes to the place where it just it, it just gets people to the point where they just don't want to try anymore. And I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm telling you the principles involved. I take people wherever they're at. I have a whole, and we'll see it before we're over today, I have a whole format that I use, that I follow. But, but I'm trying to make this point. And when you talk to people at work, you know, many times they got problems, but they don't want to do anything about them. Let me ask you a simple question, and this will illustrate what I'm trying to say to you. Now, tonight when you go to bed and you get really sleeping good, you know, and all of a sudden about 3 o'clock, you wake up for some reason and you think your house is on fire. When do you decide to call the fire department? I mean, it's a simple question. I mean, when you finally smell smoke because you don't want to wake them up either. Maybe you see smoke coming under the door. Maybe some of you are right ready to go as soon as a smoke alarm goes off. Or maybe for some of you, you got to open the door and see the orange flames flickering in the kitchen. Or do you run outside and wait with your cell phone in hand, let your neighbors get around and wait till the fire really gets going before you call them? (laughs) Or better yet, do you wait till the kids are trapped on the second floor, you know, and the house is totally engulfed in flames and then say, okay, honey, call them now. When do you call them? My point is this. The longer you wait to get help, second by second, minute by minute, day by day, month by month, and year by year, just like in your marriage and in your house, there comes a point of no return. You do understand that. There comes a point you can't save anything. Your furniture's gone. Your pets are gone your photos are gone, your jewelry's gone, your money's gone, family members may gone. Everything that was your life is now gone in that fire. And you know the tragedy of that is? It was always in your hand to avoid. By the simple price of a smoke detector or the simple ability of dialing 911. Let me ask you a question. you have any smoke detectors in your home? early warning systems that, and you know something is going on? (laughs) Let me ask you this question. Do you have any early warning smoke detectors in your marriage? See, that's the key. You see, I know last week was not an easy message for a lot of people, because people, and I like this, people have made mistakes, and I feel bad about this, and this is not my intent. And I and I worry, you don't think I do, but I, I worry about things like that because it's always the good people who are trying to do what's right who seem to take the message more to heart than they probably need to or beat themselves up, and the ones that need to take it just fly off someplace. But I, I feel bad, you know, uh, some of the things I, I had to say last week because I know that it, it is never my intention to make anybody feel bad, and I certainly, you know, I mean, things are what they are, but I have a responsibility to preach the Bible no matter what. And I'm not saying that anybody got mad about it because you're all pretty spiritual people here and you, a lot of you have come to the place of that great verse in Proverbs that you love the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. And that's just the way it is. But you know all I'm doing last week and today, really? I mean, I know I'm trying to teach you some things about working with other people, but all I'm doing today and last week is passing out free smoke detectors. That's all. That's my job. My job as a pastor is provide fire insurance. If you're unsaved here this morning, my job is to try to get you saved to keep you from the fires of hell. If you are saved this morning, then my job is to give you some insurance that will ensure that you don't feed the fire at the judgment seat of Christ. That's all it is. And you ought to have smoke detectors in your, in your house. You ought to have them in your marriage. You ought, to be able to, you ought to be able to know when things, I mean, I won't kid you. There are some situations that so get so messed up but they're unfixable. And in that case, you know what you do? You just pick up the pieces and help them as individuals to see who really wants to do what's right, and you take them where they're at and try to get them into the book and back on track. It's, it's the way it is. You just can't beat people up who are already beat up. You just can't. There's no, there's no value in it. That's not what Jesus did. And I think many times pastors take out their own frustrations on their people. And that's wrong. If you're here this morning and you're hurting and you got struggles, you got issues, you need God's people around you, not to beat you up. We, we need to do things for you, help you, encourage you, get you so you made a mistake, so it's a bad mistake. We've all made bad mistakes. And that's why you treat and deal with people in every situation differently because the same principles are involved, but... The different issues demand different ways that you, you you apply it. But after years and years of warfare, sometimes you just can't fix it. My plan, if I can't fix you, and I say this all the time, if I can't fix you as a couple, then I'll fix you as individuals and see what God does. Hey, I, 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 I never give up on what God can do. But God can only do what we allow him to do. Now, <clears throat> The first thing he says here, and that's our first rule. The first thing he says here in 7.1 becomes our second rule, and this is where we get into it. Looking back at 7.1. It says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that's in the sense of Genesis chapter 26, verses 10 through 11. If you don't have that verse there, you won't put it there. Uh, that means to get involved with any relationship and never marry. Now, before you have a heart attack, and let me explain some things. What Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is he covers all the bases. He gives you everything in the New Testament to the church that you need to know about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So he gives you the whole enchilada, so to speak, and he lays the whole thing out. And he says basically the first thing you need to do, and everybody needs to do this, consider the fact should you get married at all. Now, I say that to say this. Later on, we see that this is a specific spiritual gift that God gives to certain people. Very few people, I might add. But it needs to be a consideration of every young man and every young lady of understanding to see where I have met people in my life over the years in my ministry, 40-some years, that function very well single, some people God gives the ability to stay single all through their life and the aspect of lust or fornication just never becomes a real issue. God is, gives them that gift and that ability to be able to do that because of the fact that, that he's got something for them to do. Most people don't fall into that category. It's not a failure. It's not something that you've got to go out and say, oh, I failed God because I couldn't stay single. No, that's not how you look at it. He says in verse 7, I wish that all men were as my, even as myself. Paul was this way. But he says also in verse 9, but if you cannot contain, it's better to marry than to burn. And that burn there is defined for you in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, the burning of passion or lust. And most people don't fall into this category. So he says in verse 2, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every uh, a woman uh, have her own husband. And uh, this is the area, this is the first rule. And the first rule that everybody ought to look at before you get married, not saying it's going to happen, but it's in here, so you got to look at it. And if you you can't stay single, it's okay. But there are people who God gives that ability and gives that gift. And that's why he puts it in here. Then in verse 3, we see another concept. This is not a rule, but it's a concept. And this is the completely unknown to people today, and this is where you're going to begin to see how these things work. Now, let me make a blanket statement. Marriage and a successful marriage is not hard. It really isn't. It's like everything else we have to do in the world today. We make it a lot harder than it is. It's like studying and learning the Bible. That's not hard. It's like the Christian life. That's not hard. Where it becomes hard is when we try to do it our way instead of God's way. And I tell people, you know, there's two ways to get to St. Louis. You can go right out here. We always talk this in Bible basics class. Use that as an example. You go right down here and get on I-70. and about 230 miles, 240 miles down the road here, I-70 going east, you're going to run into St. Louis. Take you about three and a half hours. Now, there's another way to St. Louis. Go right down and get on I-70, but go west. Go through Colorado. Go through Wyoming. Go through all the way out to the California coast. Then you get on a big ferry. Make sure it's a big one. You go all the way to the coast of China. Go to China. Go through India. Work your way up to Europe. Make your way up through France, Germany, all those places over to the French coast. And then get on a bigger ferry and go to the United States coast and then pick it up in New York and then drive through New York right on down to St. Louis. See, you get two ways to get there. My point is you can get there quickly or you can get there in a long time. Take that same scenario and put it with the Bible. There's two ways to get the Bible. You can get it by going to St. Louis, my way, or you can go go Bible college and go through Hong Kong, China. It's your choice. (laughs) Christian life, the same way. You can get a few basics down, discipleship, work it that way, or you go through Nankonga, China, and go that way. <laughs> marriage is the same way. You can take the easy route and follow a few basic fundamental, because marriage is like the Bible. It's built on just a few basic fundamental concepts that if you don't have, you ain't going anywhere. And you will go through the hardest part of China. You're going to get it. If you go that way. <laughs> Now look at verse three. Here it comes. The concept of due benevolence. Let the husband render unto his wife due benevolence. And likewise the wife under the husband. Now, okay, verse three says the wife should get something called due benevolence. Now, if you're not careful, that's going to be an alimony check. So <laughs> <laughs> let's try to avoid that. <laughs> that's going both nangchang China the way we want to go the other way. Let's talk about benevolence for a moment. This is an unknown concept. Most husbands don't have a clue what benevolence is or how to give their wife due benevolence. And yet somebody says, well, it says the wife too." Yeah, but staying with the principles we talked about last week, look who's told to do it first. Say that thing? Now, benevolence is one of the greatest character qualities of God that God gives to us because benevolence means to give of yourself to and for the success of others. That's benevolence. That's benevolence. Last week, I gave you a concept in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It was unknown how that the husband is supposed to honor his wife as the weaker vessel. Have you anybody figured that out yet? I didn't give you the answer last week. Didn't give it on purpose. Okay. You see what I'm saying? The success of your marriage, any marriage, when you start dealing with people is based on just four or five little concepts that make or break any marriage relationship. I told you about Jethro and Moses. I told you how it's the little things that when you deal with the little things in your life, they never become big things. Song of Sodom chapter two, verse 24 says, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine, not the big foxes. Now, let's define this little concept here. Let's define what it means for do benevolence. What it means to, to give success to, the, uh, to others. Now, as human beings, we have three basic needs. Male or female, we have these three basic needs. And this forms the format for our benevolence. You and I, male or female, we both have physical needs. You and I, male and female, we both have emotional needs. <clears throat> and you and I, male and female, we both have spiritual needs. I think that just as a side note, this is probably the number one mistake that men make. Because men and all people think that, uh, that because we have women, men and women have the same, have the same three needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual that may be true, but they're not met the same way. They're not met the same way. You see, as men, we get our self-worth by, by what we do. We really do. That's why you see you guys out there going to town out on softball or basketball or whatever sport you play. You're into it, man. I mean, you're, you're, you, you, you take it real seriously. And I'm not saying you should. <clears throat> we get our self-worth by <clears throat> being a great salesman, doing a good job at work, good job on the ball field, <clears throat> whatever we do. And we get our self-worth by bagging the biggest deer, shooting the biggest turkey, catching the biggest fish. We call them bragging rights. But we take our self-worth by what we accomplish. And the mistake that guys make is they think that, that their, your wife or a woman gets her, gets her uh, self-worth by what she does. And that's just not true. The woman doesn't get her self-worth because she does a good job at work or she does a good job with her kids. That's not where she gets it from. The woman gets her self-worth by knowing that she is the only person in the man's life that she's married to, and he's the number one, she's the number one thing in his life. That's where she gets her her security. That's where she gets her self-worth. I went to a, I live right behind Raytown South, and I'll give you an example of this. About three or four years ago it's been now, <clears throat> I went up there. They, they had kids playing, they playing football. Uh, I guess it was, wasn't a big one. It was a varsity, not a varsity. It was junior varsity, whatever. And it was in the afternoon, so I went up, and I liked to watch them play. So I was sitting down here about four rows back from the front, and mom and dad, obviously, mom and dad were sitting in front, and their kid was the quarterback. <clears throat> and the reason I know that is because they both had jerseys with his number on it, his name on it, so that was the first clue I had. And the kid was a pretty good quarterback. Of course, I know nothing about football, so I mean, he could have been blind and deaf, and I would have thought he was good. But anyway, one play, you know, they snap the ball, and it becomes what they call in football a broken play. I'm not sure what that means, but anyway, he was scrambling. And like any good quarterback, he's going to get what he can get for his team. And I appreciate it about the kid. So he tucked the ball under his arm, put his helmet down, and he ran through the thing. And he didn't get very far. About four linemen, about 600 pounds of raw meat, you know, just killed him. Just clobbered him. And I never forget. I was sitting there, and the mom and dad both stood up. The dad, the mom stood up, and she put her hands over her mouth. And she says, oh, my God, they, they're going to kill him. The dad stands up and says, that a boy, son, give it to him again. See? I was sitting right there. I said, see there? They look at it differently. She looked at it. They just killed my baby. He looked at it. Son, you really plowed into him. good. Good job. Now, there it is. See? The needs are not the same. And the biggest mistake we make is thinking that they are. You remember the basic concepts about the Bible when God created a woman, that she's not even a direct creation. The Bible tells her she's the weaker vessel. Why, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, she doesn't even have her own name. It says that they called their name Adam. Adam gave her her name Eve. That's why a woman who's not married doesn't have her own name. She has the name of her husband. And when she gets married, she takes the name of her her father. When she gets married, she takes the name of her husband. She doesn't even have her own last name because she's not a direct creation, because of the way God made her. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that the Bible says that the woman's desire will be to her husband. She is totally dependent on man, either her husband or her father, for those basically three needs—that do benevolence—and God meets those, God meets those things, uh, God meets those things in a man through the Word of God and his growth as he gets into the Bible. And a woman can come to church all day long and she can grow and do some things, but the bottom line is she won't really grow, she won't really be what she needs to be until the husband takes those things that he's got from God and then gives those three things to her because that is. Do benevolent. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to sit down and have your own Bible study. Some people do, some people don't. There's no real format to it. I'm not suggesting that if you're not doing it this way, that you're not doing it right. There's a number of ways you can do it. The bottom line is, as long as it gets done. You see, I'm your pastor. I meet the three needs of this church. This church has the same three needs you have physical needs, you have emotional needs, and you have spiritual needs. When I teach you the Bible, I teach you and and put heavy emphasis on what? Bible principles. You know why? Because in a church, as a Christian, those are the things that when you apply them to your life, make a strong Christian that makes a strong church, okay? In your marriage relationship, you're the pastor. And just as I said many, many times, maybe it makes better sense to you now. If this church falls and fails, I won't blame on anybody. It's my responsibility as the pastor. But I carry that thing right over into my marriage and into your marriage, the bottom line is you are the pastor. It's not a question whether you are or you're not. The question is, are you a good pastor or are you not? You see? Same thing with me. Due benevolence is simply you meeting her needs through the word of God, and then her in return meeting you. That's why she's called a help me. This is due benevolence. Your wife will be whatever you decide to do with this concept. Shall we either be Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's the virtuous woman of whom in Proverbs 31, or shall be Job's wife, curse God, and die? But it's in your hands. It's in your hand. And failure to meet those three needs will always lead to a complete breakdown. That goes right back to what I said last week, that you try to run something that God ordained, marriage, by your own set of rules. You see, there's a format in this benevolence meeting her spiritual needs. However you decide to do that, however that works, it doesn't work the same way for everybody. But she gets her spiritual stability through you, and then that forms the basis for meeting her emotional needs, and that'll be her emotional stability. Sure, she gets them from the Bible, but she gets them reinforced through the due benevolence. Then that forms the basis for meeting and fulfilling the physical needs, the ministry, the family, the day-to-day things. It's just like your relationship with Christ. Your marriage should get better and closer and tighter and more defined as the years go by. Now, the next thing he says in verse 4, he says, Now the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise the wife hath not power of her own body, but, uh, but the wife. And that's the one body concept. Now this concept is found and explained in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 and other places in the Bible. Adam says back there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, a very interesting statement. He says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But notice he doesn't say anything about blood because Adam back then, he says bone of bones and flesh of flesh. You see, the bone of bones is the physical relationship but the flesh of flesh is the spiritual relationship. That's why in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, when Jesus comes out of the tomb and he's got that spiritual body, and Thomas comes over to him, he says, see the hands, uh, the hands uh, the holes in my hands and my feet? He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bone. Didn't say anything about blood. You know why? Because that's his spiritual body. So the bone of my bone represents the physical part of the relationship but the flesh of the flesh, that's something else. Adam didn't have any sinful flesh. This is before the fall, Genesis chapter 2. He had some kind of flesh that did not know sin. No sin was imputed to it. Jesus certainly didn't have any sin in Luke chapter 24. He just came out of the tomb after the crucifixion. You see, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 says again, adds to it, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now that's a spiritual union. That's a spiritual union that takes place in marriage. Verse 32 ties it together. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See how it works? I mean, most marriages, all they ever get concerned about and all they ever fulfill, and they don't even do this very well, is the physical side of things. And they never even get close to the other two and then wonder why they have issues. It's not about just how your wife's body belongs to you and hers to you. It's not about that. It's together you're one body as to what Christ wants you to do and be for him. Here's how it works. Here's how it works. Here's the bottom line. Mark and Sonia left, so I'll use them as an example. They're going to get married today. You've got a man over here and a woman over here. This is Mark. This is Sonia. They're going to go through all the traditional ramifications. Many of you will be there. They'll walk down the aisle. And uh, they're going to come home, and the two are going to get married. And we're going to go through Ephesians and talk about that. And the Bible says that today that these two are becoming one. Now, basically, when we get through the marriage ceremony, and I know that doesn't do the trick for you, but it, it's the thing where this is the concept. And so next week, when they get back from their honeymoon, or next week, whenever we see them, whenever they come back, if they... Whenever they get back around here, uh, you'll see Mark come in, and you'll see Sonia come in. Well, oh, wait a minute. This is not right. You're supposed to be one. You're supposed to, Mark and Sonia are supposed to be inside each other. I mean, you know, you know no more Mark or no more Sonia. You're, the Bible said you two become one. What's going on here? You're still separate. See, it's a spiritual thing. Now, let me tell you how it works. In God's mind, this is why God ordained marriage, this is why there's no there's no grounds for divorce for the church, but there are reasons. When the two get married in God's sight, those two become one spiritually. Not physically, they're still separate people. But in God's mind, the two become one. Well, how can you have that be a marriage? It takes two to make a marriage. If the two become one, how in the world can you make that a marriage? It says a man and a wife, they're going to be married, but then they join themselves, to each other the two become one flesh. we got a problem here. It takes two to be in that marriage. That's correct. And this is why God ordained marriage because of what it represents, and this is what it brings into the Bible that most people never figure out, that when the two become one at that point, when that marriage is joined together, they don't have a marriage because it takes two to have a marriage. There needs to be another person that makes up the point of that marriage. You know who that person is? That person is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when those two become one and Christ becomes the second part of that marriage, you figure it out from there. You tell me. Now, that does not happen. Somebody said, well, that didn't happen in my marriage. It doesn't happen in most marriages. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying that because I'm here to help you. Pick up your fire alarm on the way out, would you please? Every room in the house. But what in your car, that way when you smoke a cigarette, it'll go off and you'll be in all your trouble. But anyway, I'm telling you, this is a spiritual thing. That's why the stuff from the Old Testament doesn't fit into it. Now here's, look what he says in verse 5. This is a good, another another concept here. Defraud not ye one another, except that be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer that Satan tempt not you for your incontistency. Incontistency, if you don't have it, down in here, that's lack of control. Now, I know what the verse is basically teaching. It says basically don't use sex or the lack of sex as a weapon to get what you want or to punish someone. I understand all that. But it also says there will be times that the two people consent to abstain from it because maybe it's something they're going through or spiritually or whatever. It's whatever it is. But he uses a very strong word here, and it's the word defraud. Now, fraud or def- fraud is deceit or deception. Fraud is to gain control or advantage over someone by a deception. You see, when husband and wives use the physical, and that's all they ever have to base their whole relationship on, and they never get the other two together, remember now, it's three. It's spiritually, physically, and emotionally, because in the Bible, three is the number of completion. So you've got to have all three of them. Based on what always said, when a marriage is just built on a relation, a physical, and the other two are never met, then basically that's all you have is the physical, or if you use your physical relationship, and it's not a direct result of the spiritual and the emotional, then he's saying your marriage and your relationship, you're defrauding each other. It's more about just the physical. All three needs that we have need to come out of the other and need to work together, in other words, you have your, you have your emotional relationship, excuse me, your spiritual relationship builds into the emotional, the emotional builds into the physical, then everything is balanced out. You see, marriage is no harder than, as I said earlier, the Christian life on learning the Bible. It's not hard. The first thing you do in all three cases, say, I want to I learn the Bible, okay? Somebody else says, well, I want to have a good Christian, strong life, okay? Somebody says, they want to have a good marriage, okay? The first thing you do, is you change who you are. If it's a married relationship, then you find your role in the Bible, biblically defined as the husband and wife, and then you start to learn how to make that thing work. Just that simple. And many of you have done that. Mark and Sonia have done that. You build a Christian life the same way. You build a Christian life by applying Bible principles. You see? If you want to build your Christian life, you change who you are, and then you do this. You build a strong Christian life by the application of biblical principles. You want to learn the Bible? Okay. Change who you are. And then you learn the Bible by application of Bible basics. See? Now, you want to build a good marriage? Okay. Change who you are. And by the application of these basic concepts, the due benevolence, not defrauding, honor the wife as the weaker vessel, get into Ephesians 5, find your role, and then you, that's how you do it. It's not hard. It's simple. It's just following the basic three or four things that you have to get and you have to define. And, of course, you know, I'll give you a great verse, and this is a great verse for many, many things. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. was found in, you don't have to turn to it. I'll just tell you. You can look it up later and you need to mark it. It's found in Job chapter 9, verse 4. It says, there's two parts to the verse. He is wise in heart and mighty in power. Well, that first part of the verse basically says God can fix any issue you have. He is wise in heart. He has all the wisdom to show you how to get into the mess that you got in. And he's mighty in power. He has the ability to deliver you from whatever you're dealing with. That's a great verse. God can fix any issue you have. God has the wisdom to do it and the might and the power to get it done. That's a great verse. He is wise in heart. And mighty in power, but who hath hardened himself against him and prospered. See that thing? He may have, God may be able to fix any issue you've got, have the power to do it and the wisdom to do it, but you have to stop doing it your way and start doing it his way. You cannot continue on, anybody, in any situation, you cannot continue on. There's, there's, there, there's seven basic universal laws in the Bible They're absolute laws. It's like the law of gravity. Everything in the universe, everything around you operates on these seven laws. Two of them deal with you and me. The first one is the law of sowing and reaping. That's Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. The second one is the law of human collapse. That's Judges chapter 21, verse 25. These two laws automatically go into effect the moment you and I do anything outside the Word of God. The moment we step out into a relationship, the moment we violate the biblical principles, the moment we go do our own thing, These two laws began to go into effect. You see, in Christianity, we get saved and we live our lives any way we want. And a circumstance will come up, or a relationship will come up, or circumstances will come up, or an opportunity will come up. Totally wrong. But we'll step into that relationship or step into this scenario, and because God's judgment is not immediate, you know, because lightning doesn't come down and kill you on the spot, or you see the neighbor's house being blown up, and then God saying, "Change your ways, or yours is next." He, his name was on the list right before yours, because judgment's not immediate. We think we got away with it. That's human nature. We're all that way. And that's just not true. There is an absolute law of sowing and reaping and an absolute law of human collapse. We get into marriage, have absolutely no idea what it is, how it works, how it runs, and off we go. two, three, four, five, six, ten years later, it's all done. we ask to scratch our head and wonder why. See, it's not that God can't fix your marriage. It's the fact that you have to do right for him to fix it. And by that time, in most cases, doing right together is not an option. And that's why you take people where they're at. That's why you try to help them. This has not been a gloom and doom message. This is the facts of life about relationships given in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's no reason for anybody on this planet, in this room, to feel bad about whatever situation you were in, out of, or whenever, as long as you want to do what the Bible says, the light's green. Now, guys, let me leave you one, one more thing here, and now we're going to be done. I want to clear up something that many times has been, been a bad definition of things, and I think it leads to a lot of things. I am going to leave you with one last verse. And it's totally used in the wrong context. And I do want everybody to turn over here. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. We take people wherever they're at. We don't beat them up for where they've been or what they've done. Our job is to help people. But we have to realistically understand that sometime before a person is willing to get to that point, a lot of damage can get done. So we help do whatever we can. We take the same position here that God takes. Whenever you're ready, we're ready. But let me leave you with this, guys. This is very important. 10 1, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. And he arose from thence and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, And the people resorted unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? Now, the account in Matthew adds a little thing to that, and it says, "For for every cause. And he answered and said unto them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Jesus had said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. We already covered that. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. We've talked about that. Now here's the verse What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, the standard teaching of verse 9 is, you hear it all the time, don't let any other man come in and destroy your marriage. That's the standard Baptist teaching. I've always been a little worried about that because it didn't say anything about the woman. I mean, they've done their share of tearing up marriages. But it basically says, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. We're famous for taking verses out of context. But when you get the context of, this, of, of, of verse 9, the van of verse 9 is the same man of verse 7 and verse 2. That's not talking about just some man coming into your marriage. This man here, by the hardness of his heart, this man here, not wanting to do what's right. In other words, the only man that can put asunder your marriage, fellas, is you and me. We're the only ones. Not your wife. He said... What therefore God hath joined together, let not man. And the man of verse 9 is the man of verse 2 and the man of verse 7. He's the man who wants to get rid of his wife for every cause. And as as Christ and the church, as the Lord of your marriage, you have the power and you and me alone, like it or not, you and I have the power to put it together or put it to asunder. And that thing is based on the hardness of their heart. So when you understand that concept, you'll realize that the whole aspect of marriage is based on just a few simple, basic, absolute principles. That no matter where you're at, no matter how many failures you've had, no matter how you failed, you can fix it. Last story. Back in Genesis. Genesis. Story of Cain and Abel. Bible says that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And there came a day that they were going to bring their sacrifices before the Lord. Bible says that Abel went out and took one of the flock, obviously a little lamb, killed that, brought it in as a sacrifice. And the Bible says God had respect under his sacrifice. Cain, being the great farmer that he was, he walked out into his field and I'm sure he looked at the best crops he had and I'm absolutely certain that he picked the very best that he had and he brought it into the Lord to offer it for a a sacrifice. You know what? The Bible says that the Lord had respect unto Abel's offering, but he did not have respect unto Cain's. And then a great verse in the Bible. When the Lord meets Cain, the first thing he says to him, Why has thy countenance fallen? You know what countenance fallen means? It means you're not happy as you were 10 seconds ago. Obviously, something has been said to you. Now you're mad. Now you're upset because of the fact that I accepted your brothers, but I didn't accept yours. Hey, you know what? Anytime you preach something like this, you probably have people just like that. Some people's inside, maybe you're not showing on the outside, and your countenance now is down. But let me say something to you. I'll say the same thing the Lord said to Cain. He says, Cain, why is that countenance fallen? Cain said, because you accepted him, didn't accept mine. The Lord says, What's the problem? You go get one from uh, one of his lambs and bring it over to me. I'll accept it just like that. And the Bible says Cain left the presence of the Lord. You know what? The problem wasn't the sacrifice, the problem was Cain didn't want to do what was right. Now you know. Bottom line is simply this. Hey, do what's right. I don't care where you're at. Could care less. It's never too late to do what's right until you're dead. And it's a thing where these concepts are absolutely infallible. And these concepts carry through all the way through the Bible. And it's our job as a church to bring people in who are hurting, bring people in who have needs, and then help them with those needs and help them with those needs. All right, you learned two principles today. One, you learned that the Old Testament, there's no grounds for divorce. Well, there are grounds for the divorce, but the New Testament, there's not. Then you learned the great concept to stay single if you can and not to take a wife. Uh, but if you can't, then follow the rules in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because that's a gift. We've probably seen a lot of principles go along with it. Next week, we're going to define what marriage is. We're going to move right on into this thing, and you'll see how these principles apply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.